Europe Through the Gutter, 1973. My childhood horizon had been steadily broadening, pride wider, first by a bike, then a car, and then by two European trips with my parents. Now, nearing graduation with a passport, plane ticket, and a few traveler's checks, I was ready for the Europe beyond piano factories and Norwegian relatives, beyond parents. As I'll be when my kids are ready to travel, my parents were nervous. They decided I could go only if I had a travel buddy. Confidently, I put my help-send-a-poor-student-to-Europe coin jar on the mantelpiece. I talked up my dream of a graduation trip at school. I even advertised feel the fjords and caress the castles in the classified section of my high school newspaper. But no one had the necessary combination of will, money, and parental permission. My friend Jean wanted to go, but his mom and particularly his dad were against it. Seeing Jean as my only hope, I talked his parents into giving me 30 minutes to sell the idea. They gave me the time slot between the local news and Lawrence Welk. Mixing the skills of a lawyer, school counselor, and travel agent, I made my case. After I finished my presentation, I looked hopefully at Jean's dad. He looked insulted that a school kid had just wasted his time, an entire episode of Lucy. There was silence. He sat, fixed to the sofa. Slowly he turned to Jean's mom, then to Jean. Finally, he looked at me and he said, Where do I sign? Now I had a partner. To earn my parents' blessing, I had to make two promises. I wouldn't go to Turkey and risk being sold into the white slave trade, and I'd write home every other day. My dad figured that if the postcard stopped coming, at least he'd know where to begin looking. We graduated. On the next day, Jean and I flew. In 1973, flying was a ritual. People dressed up. Travelers gathered with next of kin around flight insurance boxes. With a solemn ceremony, they'd fill out the form and, like gamblers at a wake, drop in their purchase. On board, passengers yawned and chomped on gum, trying but failing to avoid the pain of popping ears. And people applauded captains for a safe landing. Back then, Affinity Club charter flights were cheapest. We were flying from Seattle with a German club. Jean-clad and uninsured, we walked under Alf Wiedersehen banners and passed Umpa bands as if they were for us. Jean was short, with a pixie haircut. I was tall, with longer red hair. We were both scrawny, looking like Simon and Garfunkel before their first hit, and a bit afraid. Our nervous parents slipped us some extra postage cash. Promising postcards from Europe, we did our Nixon wave, boarded the plane, and began our 70-day adventure. Within hours of landing in Frankfurt, the reality of surviving on $3 a day sank in. On that budget, gutters had gravity. Shell-shocked by the prices, we spent our first evening sharing bread with German-speaking riffraff in the streets of Heidelberg. We couldn't afford a double room. Instead, Jean rented a single from a surly woman. Through clenched German teeth, she made it clear that ein Einzel ist nur für ein. A single is only for one. I fell asleep on the floor next to Jean's sliver single bed with a map over me. If discovered, I was ready to claim that I dozed off while planning our next day and had no intention of actually spending the night. Night one, and we were off to a clumsy start. But within days, we were on track, tackling each day like a big new candy bar. There were glorious times. I remember hitchhiking across Western Ireland. We'd stick out our thumbs in whichever direction the sparse traffic was rolling. When asked where we were going, we'd say Ireland and hop in. Immersing ourselves in wide-ranging conversations, we were wide-eyed students of the road. On one ride, a truck-driving poet would discuss the notion that in Europe, a hundred miles is a long way, and in the United States, a hundred years is a long time. On the next, 
A beer-bellied philosopher explained why the Irish have as many words for drunk as the Eskimos have for ice. And tonight he planned to get pissed, wellied, sloshed, bevied, paralytic, and ratted all at the same time. There were scary times. Arriving in Naples, we were greeted by doctors in white robes who said they needed blood for a dying baby. Without hesitation, we jumped back on the train and headed for Greece. And there were simple delights. With the wonder of newborns, we caught fireflies in Bulgaria, discovered gummy bear jelly beans, and got creative with the choco-nut spread called Nutella. And with Europe as our classroom, we relived the second rise of Napoleon while following a city walking tour from Turn Right at the Fountain, a guidebook that inspired us to later write our museum tours book. We spent nights resting our chins on train windows as thunderbolts lit up La Mancha and a murky midnight twilight glowed over endless Swedish birch forests. One night, as we picnicked on a bench in front of the floodlit and magnificent Cathedral of Chartres, a bum noticed we had no wine to go with our baguette. He offered us his plastic bottle of red wine. Looking past a week's worth of bristles, I saw the happy and caring face of a man who had almost nothing in common with me. Sharing that same tiny bit of floodlit Europe, if not the wine, made the world more real, less mine, and more ours. Stumbling upon magnificent pipe organ concerts made me miss my dad. Setting up the perfect Dutch dyke campsite made me miss my mom. Nothing made me miss my sisters. With our budget, we couldn't expect clean rooms. Our goal was simply sleepable rooms. When checking out a dive, we learned to rush into the room before the hotel clerk did, flip on the light, and check for bugs before they could scurry for cover. Flies were a problem. We learned that if you waited until they rubbed their front legs together, they were easy to swat. The institutional yellow walls of Europe's worst hotels were speckled with smudged bugs. Hotels in our price range came with bare bulbs dangling from water-damaged ceilings and sagging ship-shaped beds. Mattresses were made of a sweaty beige foam and sheets didn't fit. A hot, muggy Barcelona night in the clammy bilge of a one-star hotel bed was just another part of Europe on the cheap. Plumbing was also primitive. For us, a trickle of tepid water drooling from a broken nozzle down the wall of a rusty shower stall was a triumph. As wispy, roquefort-fringed shower curtains clung to our bodies, we'd press up against the wall to rinse. With bare feet straddling spooky drains, we never picked up the fungus my mom predicted. While air conditioning was out of the question and fans cost extra, we took our sheets into the shower for temporary relief from hot Mediterranean nights. We made mistakes. We spent one evening wandering through Salerno in search of our youth hostel until we realized it was actually in Sorrento, a three-hour bus ride away. Our backpacks, complete with tube tents, Boy Scout mess kits, patrol boots, and for the last half of our trip, a huge bronze chess set, were a lesson in bad packing. And uncertain how to order in units of less than a kilo, that's about two pounds, we'd eat our produce in bulk quantities. One day would feature carrots, the next tomatoes, and the next we'd walk around with a kilo bag of plums. But 70 days in Europe gave us the equivalent of a year of living. For this first summer of our adult lives, we were like pipe cleaners, happily blackening ourselves in Europe's offbeat nooks and remote crannies. Other than freedom, the only thing we had in abundance was rail travel. Our $150 year rail pass gave us two months of unlimited second-class travel. From Lapland to Gibraltar to Sicily, it was recess, and Europe was our playground. To travelers of our means, a rail pass provided accommodations as well as transportation. 
and on more than one early morning we were jolted out of sleep by a train station loudspeaker blaring the name of our destination. We'd leap off the train, trailing sleeping bags like groggy butterflies unable to rid themselves of busted cocoons. As the train sped away, we'd do a nervous inventory of our belongings, make certain we were in the right city, and begin a new day. To maximize nights on trains, we structured our trip by artfully connecting the dots with eight-hour train rides. On occasion, to enjoy more time in a town and the budgetary boost of another free night of sleep, we'd ride a train for four hours out, cross the track, and catch a train for four hours back. Although trains had rentable berths, the extra cost was beyond our budget. Besides, the cheap seats pulled out to make a bed for free. All we needed to do was make our compartment undesirable enough to persuade others to sit elsewhere. Well, some travelers did this by putting a hand down their pants and a smile on their face, we developed the Hare Krishna approach, sitting cross-legged on the seats, staring deep into each other's spacey face, and chanting. People would slide the door open, shake their heads, and shut the door quickly, preferring a seat in the aisle rather than a night with us. One Belgrade night was particularly fitful. We arrived late. Rather than pay for a hotel, Jean and I spread out our tube tent as a ground cloth in a park near the station. As the night wore on, the park got busier and busier. Lying there, two frightened virgins under a tree, we realized this was a rendezvous spot for gays. A medley of Yugoslavian faces poked into our dim little corner, smiling approvingly at the four wide teenage eyes shining out of two cute little sleeping bags. Realizing this was no way to get any sleep, we returned to the station, ready to spend the night on a bench. Then I saw the perfect answer, a lonely single train car sitting on a grassy train track as if it would be there, uncoupled, forever. We'd have the entire car to ourselves until daybreak. Within minutes, we pulled out all six seats in a compartment. We sprawled across a wall-to-wall bed, cozy in our bags, smug dreams, and deep asleep. Then, with a humping jolt, we lurched into motion, barreling through the darkness, heads out the window. Only one thing was clear. We were leaving Belgrade. Not knowing when or where the train might stop next, we bundled our belongings and made the dumbest move of our trip. As the train slowed down at a suburban station, we tossed our rucksacks off the train and, like stunt actors, leapt after them, sprawling across the concrete platform. Shaken by the thought that we could have easily jumped into a pillar, we counted our limbs and gathered our bags. The station guard, a lonely figure swinging a lantern, walked toward us as if we were a still-hot meteorite. He wondered why we dropped into his off-the-beaten-path domain at three in the morning. Without knowing a word of Serbo-Croatian, we managed to communicate and spent the rest of the night on the floor of his locked waiting room, happy to be warm, safe, and uncomfortable. Early in the morning, before the decent workaday crowds arrive at the station, vagabonds are generally cleared out, often with brooms, sometimes with hoses. Our guard woke us with bread, tiny apples, and coffee. This was the summer I learned to like coffee. Throughout the trip, friendly locals brought us coffees and Cokes. Since Jean was a Mormon and anti-caffeine, I routinely ended up with double servings. Hunger was our incentive to budget carefully. Each week, we'd do a frightening financial check, stacking our kroner, francs, marks, dollars, and traveler's checks neatly on the bed. We'd see how we were doing and determine what we could spend next week. I kept a journal obsessively, detailing each of our expenses. Many times we went 48 hours without spending a finning. Our budget guard was always up. We knew which bottles were returnable for deposits in which countries and which small coins from one country worked as big coins in vending machines across the border. 
Like exhaust-stained orphans with an appetite for art, we slipped into museums and historic buildings through back doors and freeloaded on guided tours. For all but the most essential cultural and historic treasures, an admission fee meant the same as a locked door. To afford a Vienna Boys Choir concert, we shared one ticket, taking turns sitting in the balcony and snoozing in the courtyard. While we had a healthy appetite for high culture, we fed our bodies before our souls. My most vivid memories of that trip were edible. Canned ravioli is actually cheaper than dog food. That's a fact worth knowing and sharing. There's a camaraderie on the road, and vagabonds happily compare notes. We weren't as desperate as the travelers who hung out in Greece, harvesting their hair and blood to support their souflaki, retsina, and suntan oil existence. But we were inspired by the girls on the cruise ship to Helsinki who feasted on unfinished salads and picked untouched donuts out of clean garbage cans. To eat well and free on long train rides, we'd bring on leftover picnic scraps and sit next to a group of Europeans with bulging picnic baskets. Our offer to share a hunk of our bread would kick off festive potlucks. Midway through an all-day bus ride across the mountains just north of Albania, the driver stopped for lunch at a rustic mountain lodge. Having just arrived from Greece and without an opportunity to change money, Jean and I were literally penniless. We walked, sad and hungry, past long tables, surrounded by boisterous Yugoslavians feasting. My glasses steamed up with the happiness of other stomachs being filled. Yugoslavians were poor, and we were rich. But at this moment, the meat and potatoes were on their plates. The only thing separating us from food in our belly was pride. With the help of hunger, we overcame that and begged. Asking for just a piece of bread and a hunk of meat, we got full plates and a rustic table of Yugoslavian friends. Now, a generation later, when I collect the remains of our tour group picnics into three or four paper plate meals and find some hungry teenage backpackers to feed, I remember how that Yugoslavian charity lunch fueled another day of good travels. Jean and I encountered a similar situation when we were in a desperately poor oasis village in Morocco's Sahara. Children walked around with lifeless babies hanging from their necks, tiny faces crusted with dirt and buzzing with flies. The village's one eatery was busy with locals munching a gruel-like soup that, hungry as we were, we couldn't imagine eating. Everything was dry and filthy, like an ugly growth on a pristine desert. Balancing the last of our bread on a lens cap and taking turns shooing away the flies, we pondered this ironic scene. A dozen thin but satisfied Moroccans were sucking down this nutritious gruel, while grossed-out Americans, who had more money in their money belts than the entire village combined, went hungry. A dusty little girl, escorted by a scrap-seeking dog, brought us a big, hot bottle of Fanta. Parched and eager, I attacked the cap with my Swiss army knife. The glass top crunched off with the cap. After a short pause to consider the consequences of drinking broken glass... We sucked the pop through clenched teeth. While good Boy Scouts back home, our lack of funds turned us into petty thieves in Europe. We knew which of Scandinavia's famous smorgasbords came with protein that traveled well. Hard-boiled eggs and wrapped cheeses? Ideal. We'd pay for a breakfast and walk out with bulging day bags. I remember nearly free meals, eating fresh Italian bread in Milan with eggs and cheese from Copenhagen. But this trick had its risks. One time I swiped six hard-boiled eggs that weren't, and the bottom of my day bag became an over-easy punishment. When picnic shopping, I had rationalized a moral compromise. I'd pay for all the food but shoplift the dessert. At the end of the picnic, I'd pull the cookies out from my coat pocket with a triumphant grin. 
Jean would look at me with disgust and refuse to eat the stolen sweets. But after watching me savoring my treats for a few minutes, he'd grudgingly say, Okay, I'll have one. Jean packed a Ziploc baggie of tang. I left home with a hiker's squeeze tube filled with peanut butter and grape jam. Regrettably, my clever mix curdled. With the sadness of a pet burial, we dropped the squeeze tube into a garbage can. Before long, our tang ran out also. One day, in Bavaria, our spirits went from a record high to an almost fly-home-early low. Romping down the aisles of the U.S. military commissary store in Garmisch, we sorted through our edible hometown favorites like a pirate alone with his treasure chest. It was wonderfully American, with a vast selection and impossibly cheap prices. We filled our shopping basket with peanut butter, tang, graham crackers, beef jerky, even Triscuits. Then, at the checkout line, the cashier, who had no idea how important this was to us, said flatly, Without a military ID card, you cannot buy this. The military personnel we asked to help us out reacted as if they'd be court-martialed for buying us tang. Reshelving each delight, one by one, we battled back a strong wave of homesickness. Halfway through our trip, Jean and I planned a week with my relatives in Norway. This was a chance to wash our stinking rucksacks, take a break from our economic fight for survival, and be part of a family. By the time we reached Oslo, we had shrunk our stomachs. Two sandwiches a day kept hunger at bay, until Norway. It seemed Norwegians measure hospitality in calories. Meals came in two assaults. First, a lavish table of smoked salmon, creamy fish balls, vegetables, and delicate open-faced sandwiches. Then, after waddling to the overstuffed furniture of the living room, a parade of cakes and cookies with pop or coffee followed. Between meals, we would visit other relatives, who'd show their love by feeding us again. Kaka is one thing in Spain, but in Norway, kaka is cake. Kransa kaka, Napoleon kaka, Eula kaka, and my favorite, krum kaka. Every time I moaned, I'm full, uncles would laugh, explain that full is the Norwegian word for drunk, and put another fancy frosted kaka on my plate. I remember fjordside jogs with Jean, actually stressed out about our inability to face another festive table piled with food. We left Norway with bulging bags of goat cheese sandwiches and fancy pastries. But when the last lepsa was eaten, we were on our own again, stomachs stretched out and more demanding than ever. We spent the last half of our trip on a crude diet of Fanta and crusty bread with a thin icing of strawberry jam. We suffered from painful cases of baguette mouth. About once a week, we'd declare a day bread-free in order to give the perpetually roughed-up roofs of our mouths a chance to heal. As the last day of our adventure neared, we made up words to the tune of Paul Simon's Kodachrome. When I think back on all the crap I ate in Europe... It's a wonder I am here at all. Although my lack of good nutrition never hurt me none, I got maggots on my stomach wall. Mama don't take my jam and bread. Mama don't take my jam and bread. Mama don't take my jam and bread away. Hey, hey. I didn't know that I would return home to a kind of mental breakdown. The doctors called it chronic fatigue. Exhausted and undernourished from this trip, I was mentally AWOL for the first month of college. I couldn't teach piano, I couldn't keep score in ping-pong, and I had a terrifying ability to make bad things happen just by thinking about them. Before turning the key in my car's ignition, I'd be afraid nothing would happen. Then I'd turn the key and get silence. I couldn't cope with the world. 
it scared me back to mom and dad. I spent a week reclining in a big chair, throwing magnetic checkers at metal things in my parents' living room. I was back on track by my second quarter at college, and, astonishing my mother, I took a class on nutrition. Since then, I've never touched a Fanta or a jam sandwich. In fact, I'm passionate about drinking 100% pure orange juice. But while in Europe, exhaustion and fatigue are not options. With impressive teamwork, Jean and I never let up. If one of us was down, jaded, homesick, or vomiting, the other was up enough for two. We were vagabonds with a mission to experience Europe. Managing on our budget required more than skimping on food. Jean and I learned from other vagabonds that you could buy a ticket from Brindisi in Italy to the island of Corfu, miss your stop in Corfu, and sail free all the way to Patras in Greece. As the boat pulled away from the shrinking Corfu harbor, we screamed as if we left our loved ones on the dock and raked in undeserving sympathy from the crew. We put a similar trick to use in Eastern Europe, which our Eurail passes didn't cover. We bought a train ticket to Sofia in order to go somewhere further, like Plovdiv. When the conductor checked our tickets after Sofia, we said simply, We go to Sofia. He motioned that Sofia was already passed. We acted as if we didn't understand, convinced that Sofia lay ahead. When we finally got it, we were mad that we missed our stop. The conductor, thinking we were stupid rather than dishonest, kicked us off the train in Plovdiv. Our tight budget didn't prevent us from buying quirky souvenirs. In a small Spanish town, we hung out behind the bullring and watched the post-fight skinning of the bulls. As if the matador were the underdog, the butcher and his crew celebrated the death of these animals with bravado. They hoisted the bulls tail first, leaving them swinging like traitors from a bloody gallows. Between long swigs of red wine, they peeled and processed the losers. For a couple of dollars, the butcher sawed off the horns, and we each had a trophy. The butcher explained that we should carefully hollow out the horns. Thinking, rubbish, we said, see, 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 and took the horns back to our hotel. Shampooing the cute tufts of hair still upholstering the fringes and marveling at how bangles from the matador's coat were lodged under tiny horn splinters, we dreamed of having this evocative bit of Spain on our bookshelves back at home. Rather than clean the horns, we left them on the rooftop outside our hotel window to air out for a few days before heading north. The horns began to smell. In fact, they smelled so much we no longer needed the Hare Krishna trick to keep our train compartments empty. But far from Spain, when a persistent and thriving colony of bugs infested our pointy prizes, we gave up and abandoned our horns. Our best souvenirs were memories of the people who carbonated our experience. Like a bubble wand makes more bubbles when you wave it, a traveler meets more people while on the move. I met more fascinating people in a week of European travel than I do in a year at home. Coconut, an Israeli flower child who left her country rather than take up arms, took the chill out of Paris. In Morocco, we palled around with a professional photographer who taught us to relax your local subjects by acting so crazy they write you off as a fool. Visiting Linz, Hitler's hometown, we were adopted by a grandmotherly friend of a friend. Referring to me and Jean as meine Kinder, my children, she told us stories of the Fuhrer's youth. Vagabonding drives you into the youth hostels where shoestring travelers from around the world rely on conversation for entertainment. Youth hostel doors are locked by 10 o'clock and lights are out by 11, but bunk bed conversation rages long after curfew. We found ourselves propped on our elbows, staring intensely into each other's darkness, passing around travel tales like a bucket of popcorn. 
Finishing off our 1973 trip with one last cheap stunt, Gene and I rode the train from Frankfurt to its airport on an expired Eurail pass. Nothing gets by German conductors. Our only hope was that we'd reach the airport before they finished their sweep through the train. Starting at opposite ends of the train, they methodically worked their way to the middle. Watching them approach like collapsing walls of knives, we nervously clicked off suburban stations as the airport neared. With the conductor within six rows on either side of us, the train lumbered to a halt at the airport. Gene and I squirted out, ready and needing to fly home. We flew home with $2.50 between us, clutching overstuffed journals, ready to resume our decent and properly funded lives. On this first Europe through the gutter trip, I learned that spending money had little to do with the richness of our travel experience. We had rooms with a Jungfrau view, even if on hay in a barn. We danced into the wee hours at a neighborhood inauguration of a new public toilet in Geneva. We hobnobbed with the jet set at roulette tables of Monte Carlo until we got kicked out, and we shopped for unique and fragrant souvenirs. Gene and I did our final expense tally on the plane. In 70 nights, we spent $52 each for bets. The 20 nights we splurged in hotels or pensions cost $3.80 per double. The 18 nights in youth hostels ran us 83 cents per bed. About half our nights were free. We each spent $111 for 70 days of food, $243 for our round-trip airfare, $150 for the two-month train pass, and $202 for sightseeing admissions and everything else. Total cost, $758 each. Today, a two-month youth rail pass alone costs more than that. Flying home, I finished my journal with, My future is precarious, but I feel a strange, almost cocky optimism a feeling that I'm climbing a ladder with plenty of rungs to go. I didn't know it then, but this was the first of 25 summers in a row that I would spend in Europe. And 25 years later, it's clear, this trip was the best.